And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about ethical issues in domestic infant adoption. I found this show fascinating and I think you will as well. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. From an agency perspective, there there's definitely a need to sort of put the information out there for women who are pregnant and are considering their options, but I think that the responsibility of the agency is to keep that information at an information level and not a coercion level. Um, and I find still, even with the, you know, tons of money that people, agencies, attorneys, facilitators spend on internet advertising that many of the women that contact our agency are still finding us through word of mouth or from their doctor or someone who they've spoken to specifically rather than just something they read online. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. And you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. Creating a Family has adoption education courses for parents. We have over 100 of these courses covering just about any topic you can imagine, including domestic adoption, issues related to domestic adoption, uh, uh, education relevant to international adoption, including 30-some-odd uh, courses that are uh, Hague uh, 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 Hague aligned. Uh, we have fo- courses on foster care adoption, transracial adoption, prenatal exposure. You name it, we've got a course on it with some of the leading experts in the United States, and we would love to have you utilize these courses. You can find them by going to our website, creatingafamily.org, and clicking on underline uh, on online courses and then you we have both individual courses as well as packages uh, and if you need a certificate of completion you can get one for taking the course as well we hope that this resource is is useful to you uh, the creating a family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor faring pharmaceutical and we thank them for their continued support for making this show happen in addition to Faring, we also have other wonderful gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include MLJ Adoptions. They are a nonprofit Hague-accredited adoption agency serving families across the United States who are interested in growing their families through international adoption. They also offer home study services to residents of Indiana. And we have Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. And Holt International. 
They were founded in 1956 and want every child to have a loving and secure home. They have programs that strengthen and preserve families that are at risk of separation, and they lead to global community in finding families for children who need them and providing the pre- and post-adoption support they need to thrive. In addition to those wonderful gold sponsors, we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on our website. You can search by location, services provided, just a host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us. And we thank you. Today we'll be talking about ethical issues in domestic infant adoption. Our guests to talk about this important topic are Ashley Cadet and Susan Myers. They are both district supervisors with Adoptions from the Heart Adoption Agency. Welcome, Ashley and Susan, to Creating a Family. I heard Hello. you both. Yeah, thanks. I heard you both. Uh, in fact, I'm telling this to our audience. Uh, this show, the genesis for this show, was a presentation that Susan and Ashley made at the National uh, Council for Adoption Conference um, and back in, I guess it was September of this year. And uh, I went in to listen to them, and I really was blown away. I was blown away by the topic and the honesty. Uh, and I think it's important to realize that that they were talking to not adoptive parents, but primarily, almost exclusively, really, to adoption professionals. And they were raising some of the the, the hard issues that that uh, ethical agencies and and, uh, and as well as adoptive parents and birth parents and adoptees sometimes think about. And I was I was so appreciative. Uh, in fact, I think I sent you guys kind of a fan uh, email afterwards. <laughs> I said, I really, really like this show. And then as we started, we, we corresponded a bit. I said, you know, I want to do this show. Uh, I want to do, uh, uh, I really, really liked your presentation, and I wanted to do the presentation uh, as, uh, as a show, or at least the topic. And, uh, and then we've received a lot of questions from our audience. So, um, this will be, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's it's something we don't talk about, but we often think about. And I think by not talking about it, it seems as if we're all in collusion or uh, to, to not talk about it or to hide these facts, and that really isn't the case because I think adoption professionals are talking about it. And as well, your presentation was very well received. One of the things that you said in your presentation was you were lamenting the uh, the commodification and the consumerism in adoption. Ashley, what did you mean by that? So we really wanted to be more thoughtful about the fact that we often hear comments um, from adoptive families that we work with as well as in the larger adoption community about how much adoption costs. And yep. sort of the follow-up to that is often, um, you know, well, what am I really paying for? Is it really worth it? And sometimes the attitude is, well, I'm paying you for a baby, so why don't you get me a baby, um, when really that's not the reality of the process. There's a lot more involved, and, and we're certainly never accepting fees to, to provide children <laughs> to families. Um, our service and the service of all adoption agencies is really to find appropriate families for children. You gave a quote from uh, Jim Gritter, and he wrote, and I'm blanking on that. I should have looked it up. I'm blanking on the name of his book. Susan, do you remember Jim's book, the title of his book? Yes, the one we um, pulled from was called is called the spirit of open adoption. 
exactly. Thank you. The Spirit of Open Adoption. Um, the book was printed in 1997. It is an excellent book and one that I, I truly recommend. I'm not actually sure if it's still in print, um, but uh, it's it's a great book. It is book. in print, but it's hard to is find. It, is it hard to find? Is it on Amazon? Um, I don't think so. I think we found it through the Child Welfare League of America, their publications um, office. Okay. That's a good source for finding it. Uh, anyway, I do recommend the book, but here is a quote that you gave that I wrote down um, in your presentation. Adoption happens best when it is least tainted by self-interest. It happens best when it rises above what's in it for me, the what's in it for me currents of our culture. I love that, uh, as I love most things by uh, written by Jim. Um, one of the things, we've gotten a number of questions, so we've kind of, I've divided this show up into kind of segments, and we'll, we'll talk about the issues you talked about, the commodification, the influence of money, the consumerism, uh, in relation to, to various topics. Um, the thing that we got the most questions from, from our audience, was expectant mother recruitment. Um, one of the things that uh, you mentioned in your presentation was that a pregnant woman trying to make a good plan for her unborn child is as much in need as a waiting child. They are also our, uh, we also have a, an ethical obligation to them. Um, I'd like to quote from a couple of, well, first, an editorial that I recently read. It was not uh, not recently written, but it was in the Birmingham Free Press. It was an editorial. And this is just a, a section, a couple of sentences there. They said, domestic adoption is a multi-billion dollar industry where money talks and the law benefits those with deep pockets. Adoption facilitators, including agencies and private attorneys, profit from arranging a successful adoption for paying clients. This has significant implications for women who find themselves faced with an unplanned pregnancy. The demand for white, healthy infants is high, and the adoption in industry strives to supply white, adoptable babies for prospective couples. In this widely unregulated system, efforts are made to encourage women to relinquish their children to adoption. Furthermore, adoption laws don't provide safeguards that allow a, a birth mother to make a fully informed decision. If they did, there would simply be fewer infants available for adoption. Um, and I, I just wanted to read that because I think that is a uh, certainly a a common. I'm not sure how common it's, but it's certainly a a, um, a sentiment that that we hear from those both in and outside of the uh, professional adoption community. And here is a more specific question from Renee. One of the subjects that bothers me a lot is the idea of such a large chunk of agencies' money going to advertising. I get that there's only one way they can really even hope to keep up with the demand for healthy babies, but I've run across some on pregnancy forums and even a quiz of do you have what it takes to be a parent uh, on uh, some of the agency forums with the apparent goal of the expectant parent deciding that they don't have enough money or resources to parent their child and should give them up to someone else who might be wealthier and have a spouse. I have a little sister, and seeing these ads, I couldn't help but wonder if she were pregnant and vulnerable, and she saw these. Would she be driven to do the, quote, right thing, to give up her child? Um, let's talk some about advertising and the uh, – uh, uh, is it a necessary evil, Ashley? I think that from an agency perspective, there there's definitely a need to sort of put the information out there 
for women who are pregnant and are considering their options, but I think that the responsibility of the agency is to keep that information at an information level and not a coercion level. Um, and I find still, even with the you know tons of money that people, agencies, attorneys, facilitators spend on Internet advertising, that many of the women that contact our agency are still finding us through word of mouth or from their doctor or someone who they've spoken to specifically rather than just something they read online. Um, and that makes me feel like, we're doing a good job, and I would hope that, that others are doing the same um, to really get information out there for women who are considering their options but not feeling like it needs to be a pressure situation. And uh, Susan, from the, um, what would an ethical advertisement be in your opinion? Um, informational, I heard that, but um, how, how do you advertise or how can professionals advertise in an ethical way without shaming or, or putting pressure on uh, expectant women? Sure, that's a great question. I think that it's our, um, you know, it is our responsibility, sort of as Ashley had said, to uh, direct the advertising uh, or to frame the advertising as information and um, education, um, sort of awareness for pregnant women um, who may be considering adoption as one of several choices that they have when making a plan, right, for the for their future child. Um, we want to raise awareness of open adoption um, because that's sort of the um, one of the hallmarks of, of our organization. Um, and open adoption is, you know, the common, really the most common path um, now. So we want to, you know, have the advertising explain, you know, sort of what open adoption is. Um, would you like to meet with someone to learn more about it? Um, but it's never, um, we try to make the, we would hope that the advertising that the agency or the, or the um, facilitator does is, is geared toward um, informing the woman of her choices rather than making promises. Um, so where we see dangers um, is with Internet advertising that makes promises of all different kinds um, to both expectant parents as well as adoptive parents. Um, and it's very difficult to, um, you know, imagine those promises are all going to be fulfilled. But vulnerable people can definitely be taken advantage of through that. And that raises an, an interesting point um, that a, a number of people brought up, and that's the role of openness. And, um, and Susan, you're right. I think the vast majority of, of adoptions now in the United States, especially those uh, domestic infant where the, where the birth mom relinquishes the child, um, have some degree of openness, but uh, the enforceability of openness contracts is uh, was raised uh, by a um, a couple of people. Um, let's see, yeah. Sandy raised it. Let me read just read her question. She said, uh, "Do agencies ensure that any mother who chooses adoption based on openness also chooses adoption, knowing that she may never know if her child is even living, let alone well, and there is a chance she takes signing those papers? If they don't make that abundantly clear, it is un in unvarnished language. Is that ethical?" And then Renee also has, and I'm not going to read hers, but she also said she was discussing that the uh, unenforceability of open adoption contracts in most states and or the lack of making that well known to uh, uh expectant moms and dads um are uh, it, she also questioned the ethicalness of that so let's talk about that um 
in yeah. uh, very Susan, in very few states is the openness contract enforceable, and even in those states, it's questionable because best interest of the child, and if the adoptive parents claim it's not in the best interest of the child, then it can be closed. So, so how do you handle that? Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's probably not enforceable um, in the majority of states. I think I think I had read maybe 15 or 16 states have legally enforceable um, open adoption agreements. We always would hope that the adoption service provider who's helping the family as well as the expectant parent create that open adoption agreement is being honest um, and um, underlining the importance of, you know, this is a Adoption is sort of a covenant, you know, that you're making um, between these two parties, um, whether it's legal or ethical. You know, a moral covenant is um, should be just as valid as, as a legal one. And um, do we all agree that we will send pictures and letters, you know, once a year for 18 years, and we will be able to um, see ourselves having one visit a year at the annual picnic or at the place of our choosing? So it's just so important that it's discussed um, and that that's the role of the adoption professional, whether it's an attorney or a social worker, in helping the um, parties come to an agreement about what their uh, contract, what their agreement should look like. But we see it frequently that down the road um, things happen, people change, people move, and sometimes they do not uphold their um, open adoption agreement. And that's usually the... um, most difficult thing for for us to to handle is you know finding a way to bring the adoptive parents because it's usually adoptive parents who drop out of contact um, back into the loop and and keeping in contact. Yeah, and this is Ashley. I think that one of the things that we do so when we first meet with adoptive parents, I find that a lot of folks are very concerned about open adoption. They've seen the scary Lifetime movies and they think that this means that their child's birth mom is going to be coming over to their house every weekend for Sunday dinners and that sort of thing. And so I think that part of what we can do as adoption professionals is a lot more education with prospective adoptive parents about what open adoption really looks like and really why it's beneficial. Uh, Talking about how important it is for the children in these adoptions to be able to have access to that information, to know who they look like and where they come from and have access to the person who can answer those questions. Um, So we do some of that in education courses, we encourage um, prospective adoptive parents to listen to the perspective of birth parents and sort of what that process was like for them to really understand how important that openness can be, um, as well as listening to adult adoptees um, who are talking about that experience as well. I am so glad you brought that up. Trying to um, expand the, the mindset of adoptive parents to help them see the experience from the standpoint uh, of the birth parents and the standpoint of the adult adoptee, um, I think that goes a long way uh, to helping. Um, and, and we and, and I will tell you that one of the things that we see um, at creating a family because we see the same thing that after the adoptive family has the child and and is settling into life, it's and and the the rose is off the bloom uh, uh, the bloom is off the rose. Uh, uh, of the newness of the relationship with the uh, with the birth parents, it's easy to become annoyed at them, and quite frankly, sometimes some of the behavior might be annoying. 
but uh, but perhaps mm-hmm. not outside the norm of what they experience in other relationships, other important relationships, family relationships, and things. And that it's easy yep. to just throw away the the agreement they made because it's either not convenient or or it's hard. Quite frankly, sometimes it's not easy. Um, and we, as the uh, National Adoption Education Organization, uh, we are committed to trying to to be there with families after to help them. Uh, navigate the stickiness at times of open adoption so that they will uh, honor uh, and also to do what you say, which is to show the face of what it's like to be a uh, birth parent who has had the, their agreement reneged on. I mean, I'm I just trying to, to, trying to imagine the pain that you're putting that person through. And then ultimately, to hear what they're going to have to that they're going to have to report to their children ultimately, because when their children are open, they may well have reached out and heard the story from um, their birth parents' side. Uh, and so, adoptive parents need to realize that they're going to have to report in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, um, and so, what can uh, ethical professionals do? One of the things you said was. Um, make certain that that uh, adoptive parents at the beginning, before they go into agreement, settle on something reasonable uh, that they can live with. Um, and the other thing you said is uh, adoption professionals can try to help parents, uh, adoptive parents, see the uh, see the the situation from the eyes of a birth parent and an adoptee. Uh, both of those were good. Uh, Ashley, anything else you can think of that adoption professionals could do, ethical adoption professionals can do at the beginning to try to help these open adoptions thrive after the fact and not have them be reneged on? Sure. I think that, I mean, all the things that we've discussed and just really expanding on that, so as much education, and we talked in our presentation about perspective taking, so really giving perspective adoptive parents all of the different opportunities to really understand and try to put themselves in the shoes of of a birth parent um, or before they even become a birth parent, an expectant parent, um, or a pregnant woman who is considering adoption, how difficult that is, um, then what that relationship might look like, you know, putting their themselves in their shoes again to say, you know, not only how hard is this to consider, how hard is this at the hospital, but then how hard it might be to receive that first set of pictures and letters, how hard it might be to decide whether you want to do your first visit when the child is a year old, and, and really just trying to understand their perspective throughout each stage of the process, not just focusing on themselves, not just focusing on this baby, but looking you know, at that the whole life cycle of adoption. Excellent. And then, and one thing I would throw in there is, uh, and I know you guys do this, and that is to provide education after the adoption, the post-adoption period, mm-hmm. um, to help parents navigate some of the confusing things that open adoption can present. Um, and that's where we see one of the biggest needs. Although I would grant you that that if there had been uh, more, I love the term, perspective-taking done uh, at the beginning that might be less necessary uh, post-adoption. Um, let's see, another, um, well, this one was uh, uh, somebody wrote in they, and they asked about why do many, if not most, adoption agencies call an expected mother a birth mother? How is that not designed to subtly enforce the outcome the agency wants to happen? How is that anything but the antithesis of positive adoption language that they espouse. 
and what <laughs> people and when can we expect this to change? Um, okay, I have thoughts on that too. Let's see, Susan. I'd like to hear what you have to say. We do think, yeah, that's it's a really good point. We do think that it is um, disrespectful to refer to um, a woman who's considering adoption as a birth mother before she's given birth. Um, I mean, you're, you're not a birth mother until your baby has been born. And um, obviously you've, you know, chosen to go forward with a placement. Um, an expectant mom is exactly that, you know, a woman who is pregnant and is expecting a baby. Um, and I think that there has been a shift in the use of that language um, with most of the adoption professionals that I've been in contact with um, over the past five years. I think that there probably are still states and places where it is less common to hear that language. Um, but it is my understanding that more and more people are aware of it and that it is um, maybe, you know, like, like the uh, caller uh, or reader um, said, a subtle way of um, influencing or, or trying to, you know, anticipate the outcome that you want. Um, we, we never know whether a um, pregnant woman is going to make a, that decision to go forward with the placement until after the baby's born. Ashley, when did this shift happen from, because it used to be very common, I mean, even adoption, uh, ethical adoption, I mean, it used to be very common in, from everybody's standpoint to call expectant moms birth mothers, but that's now changed. But when did it change about, I mean, I'm not asking the exact year, but give me a rough range about how many years ago that we started making a concerted effort to distinguish between expectant moms and birth moms. I mean, I do think it's, fairly recent. You know, Susan said within the last five years, um, and I can tell you I've been uh, in the adoption community for about the last seven, and I definitely remember in the beginning of my time here, um, everybody was a birth mom. So I think that it's it's definitely recent, but it's also very needed. Um, I find, too, when I'm working with a mom, oftentimes when I'm talking to her about her decisions and about the other clients that I work with and how they come to a decision, I'll just call her a mom because that's what she is, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be an expectant mom or a birth mom or a biological mom. Oftentimes we use that birth mother language, I think, sort of in relation to talking about adoptive parents and sort of giving everybody their role, um, but they don't always need to be talked about in conjunction with that other party. Sometimes they just need to think about, you know, your mom, what do you want to do in this situation? Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I do think, I see the shift happening. Um, I think it's relatively new. Uh, and I think what mm -hmm. I see more often now, um, although I think Sandy's right, there are probably uh, definitely adoption professionals who still do that. But I, I see more often people say, birth, mo uh, I mean, expectant mom, you know, they, they start. Uh, but mm -hmm. I think that's, Part of the of the growth and learning is that we catch, you know, used to be we didn't catch ourselves. Now we catch ourselves. Uh, so progress right. is being made. Okay, I want to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about expectant mother options counseling. However, first I want to give you just a, some, a little bit of information about creating a family and to remind everybody you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility, and today we're talking about ethical issues in domestic infant adoption. Uh, 
Uh, Clout now ranks Creating a Family as the number one or number two online influencer worldwide in the area of adoption. Uh, We primarily hang out on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest, and we would love to have you join us. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can like me personally. Uh, or uh, connect with me personally, and I'm Dawn.Davenport1. You can uh, like our Facebook page, which is Creating a Family, or you can join the Facebook Creating a Family Facebook support group. It is a closed group that so you have to request to join, uh, and you can find that by going to facebook.com slash groups slash Creating a Family, or you can just type in the words creating a family in the Facebook search box, and you can both the page and the group will pop up so you can like the page and join the group. And on Twitter and Pinterest, we, are, we go by at creating a family, and we'd love to have you join us. Now to talking about uh, options counseling. That's the counseling given to an expectant mom, um, talking about what her options are uh, with this uh, pregnancy. And we had a number of people write in uh, talking about, uh, first of all, let's start with the whole idea of are adoption agencies or adoption attorneys the right people to be doing this counseling, or, as somebody said, is there an inherent conflict of interest? Ashley, do you have thoughts on that? I can understand the perspective of there being an inherent conflict of interest, but I think if it's made clear from the outset that there is no obligation to make an adoption plan um, and that we really are just here to help you determine what the the best plan for you is, um, that hopefully women can feel confident in the information that's given um, and the the ideas that they can draw from that. it's difficult because I don't really think that there are a lot of other organizations out there that aren't related to adoption that are able to provide those services. Um, some agencies provide education to other service providers about options counseling so that they can have those arsenals in their tool belt to ha- you know, to be able to provide that education. Um, but I don't think that there are a lot of organizations out there that have all of the information that's needed to provide that. Uh, education to women, and if they're if they're using independent counselors, um, and some people I've, I've heard of agencies with using independent counselors, but the agency is usually the one, if not always, paying the the counselor. So I'm not sure that gets necessarily away. Right. Maybe it gets uh, to a certain extent. Susan, any thoughts on that before I move on to the next question? No, not really. I think Ashley said it said it great, but it's just that we, you know, we do we do want this because adoption has to be about the child, you know, not about the um, adoptive parents or about the expecting parents. Really, it's, the bottom line is it's about the child and what's the right, you know, what's what's going to be right for them. So we do want women to have the opportunity to explore all those options, even though sure we're you know we are an adoption agency. That's what we do, but. Um, being um, professionals, you know, as well, I mean, being, you know, credentialed social workers and counselors, um, we do want them to have the benefit of being able to explore, you know, truly explore what their choices are before coming to that final decision. Well, Susan, how can, uh, how can we do uh, ethical uh, options counseling and our, or how can we make certain that a woman or a couple 
isn't finding a permanent solution to a temporary problem, what are some things that you can do in in counseling with uh, expectant moms to help them uh, think through uh, their full range of, of options? Sure. So we will talk with them um, in the very first meeting, you know, in the very first session about what other choices, you know, do you have? Who are your family? Who is your support system? Who are your family members? How do they feel about your pregnancy? How would you feel about them helping you raise this baby? Or how would you feel about one of them having guardianship of this baby for a few years until you feel like you're ready to parent? Or how about foster care? You know, what are your feelings about having your baby go into foster care and, you know, you getting some services to help you with whatever those personal issues are that you're experiencing? Um, So we focus on that right away, you know, at the very beginning to be sure that there isn't another solution um, that they can see. But when, you know, when all of that is explored and they come back to, I mean, many times they they say thanks. You know, I think there is somebody else who's going to be able to help me out or I'm getting back together with the father of the baby and I thought we were over, but we're not. And so we are going to try to make a go of it together and raise this baby together. But when they come to the final, you know, when they come to the decision that I want a plan where I know that my baby's going to be loved and cared for and I'm going to be respected and I'm going to be part of his or her life Um, and I know that that's going to be permanent and there isn't going to be a change to it, then we know that, that, you know, that adoption is probably the the path for them to take. But we really do have to do that other, we have to do that other stuff at the beginning. Okay. And one thing that uh, adoptive parents can do is ask the agencies they're considering uh, what percentage of the uh, 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 pregnant women who come in ultimately decide to place and if the agency tracks that and they tell you it's a very high percentage, 80%, 90%, something like that, then, then mm-hmm. that might be a sign that the counseling is, is, uh, is pushing one way, pushing towards adoption. Would you agree with that, Ashley? Absolutely, yes. I think that's a really great question for prospective adoptive parents to ask to get an idea um, about what the, that prospective agency is doing. Um, And I think you're right that if it is a very high number, there could be a concern about what that counseling looks like. Yeah, and we also tell uh, 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 prospective adoptive parents to look at the section of the adoption agency's website that is directed to uh, expectant couples or expectant women. Um, And and look at that and see how they feel about whether it's it's giving a fair assessment uh, of, of, of not necessarily that in the, the website itself does it talk about all the options, but does it seem like it is being mm-hmm. um, overly uh, pushy towards um, uh, or, or guilting or shaming or something along those lines right. um, so they can take a look at that. We also have a question from Ian talking about not options counseling, but counseling in general for expectant and, and expectant moms as well as birth moms. He asks, how can prospective adoptive parents help obtain pre-birth and post-placement counseling for birth parents? Uh, and he notes that some agencies and attorneys offer no counseling at all, which he is correct on. Spe- yeah, anyway, uh, Susan, thoughts on what adoptive parents can do um, to try to insert and try to be certain that uh, expectant parents are receiving uh, just general counseling um, for this life-altering decision, and then after the fact that counseling is available. 
Sure. So one thing would be, you know, to ask the agency up front when you, um, you know, before you apply or when you're considering entering into their program what their services are to birth parents or to expectant parents. Um, Most agencies that do provide infant adoption services um, offer a professional caseworker, a professional social worker or counselor who's going to be assigned to that expectant parent and work with them throughout the pregnancy and after um, birth as well. But many times we um, will make referrals to um, clinicians, to mental health counselors um, in the community if we feel that there might be a, you know, a, greater, a greater need um, that that birth parent has after um, the adoption happens, after placement. Um, So, you know, it's important that they ask what the connections are that the adoption agency has in the wider community, and will they make um, referrals to mental health counselors if those are needed and follow up on them. And some agencies... And I think, too... Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, sometimes... um, Prospective adoptive parents are not using a full-service agency. Sometimes they're using a facilitator or an agency on one side of the country that works with prospective uh, birth parents or expectant parents across the country, and so they don't provide a lot of face-to-face services or attorneys who just handle the legal side of things. Um, And so prospective adoptive parents should know that they still have the opportunity to request counseling for that expectant mother if she is interested in receiving it from a licensed social worker or an agency that's local to her. Um, And that is something that they may be responsible for paying for, but it would ultimately be recommended and probably better for everyone else (laughs) in the end. I'm I'm giving you a standing ovation. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Parents, because you're exactly right that there are um, certainly agencies, but more often facilitators and, and attorneys, who that's not part of the services. But I've never heard of one who will not provide counseling. You pay for it. The adoptive parents would pay for it. But it is money well spent right. um, and, and, in my opinion, should be a part of uh, all uh, adoptions. Let's talk a little about uh, support, uh, uh, birth parent support groups or maybe even expectant parent support groups. Um, but I was thinking more of after placement. I know that um, how important are those and how readily available are those? That may be more of the, the, the question to ask. Susan? Yeah, I think they're very important, and um, we have – you know, seen that they they are hard to find. Um, so that's there's definitely a need um, for more uh, support groups for women after um, placement. Um, our agency has offered we do offer support groups um, a few times. Uh, you know, not not on a terribly frequent basis, but a few times per year. Every every office does um, host a birth mother support group, and we know that there are some Internet support um, groups. There are Facebook groups, and there are a few um, Internet-based support organizations that connect women to each other online. Um, So that's available um, if there aren't uh, face-to-face groups um, in the community uh, where the birth mother lives. But definitely very important for them to be able to access that kind of you know, support from you know the only only people who truly understand what they're what they've experienced are are other women who have um, made an adoption placement. Exactly, uh, you know, and I 
I think, let's see, Birth parent, birth Mom Buds or Birth Parent Buds, I think it's called Birth Mom yes. Buds is one. And on, the, yes. on her feet, and, and, uh, but again, they, they're not, I mean, they're in person. Well, actually, I think Birth Mom Buds is, is also online, but um, there are, uh, and then On Her Feet is another one. But again, I think they only have like, um, I believe only a couple of in-person um, places where they have been organized. But uh, I think uh, agencies uh, could do more by either supporting those which already exist or starting up uh, a chapter in, in their general location or something, Cause I, or as you guys do, which is Adoptions from the Heart has their own, uh, which is also, I think, you know, terribly useful as well. All right, we have a question from Catherine. She says, one thing that has me worried over the years is how often one might see an expectant mother or a birth mom say that they were told that they had to sign by a certain date. For example, they said they had to sign by 72 hours after the birth, when in fact they had to sign, hang on a second, she's her, I understand what she's saying, what she wrote didn't make sense, where they were told they had to sign by 72 hours after birth, when in fact that was the minimal amount of time where they had to sign. Um, let's see. Uh, Ashley, do you understand her question, the distinction between a minimal time period for signing and uh, that being a drop-dead time for signing? Absolutely, yes, and we find this a lot uh, with our families who, so we work in a lot of states, and one of our states is New Jersey, which has a 72-hour irrevocable surrender. So people, prospective adoptive parents, get really excited when they hear that because irrevocable means that, you know, this is a done deal. And so they expect that as soon as that baby is 72 hours old, mom is signing and it's, it's done. Um, and we try to do a lot of education on both sides about we're never going to have a mom sign until she feels ready. And if that means that she's ready at 72 hours, then we can sign at 72 hours. And if that means that she's ready at six days, then we could sign at six days. Um, and that's a, a really important distinction that ethical agencies and, and professionals should be making to all of the parties that are involved. So prospective adoptive parents understand that if a mom needs another day before she signs her relinquishment or her consent to adoption, that that's okay. That's not necessarily a red flag. And that uh, expectant moms or, or women who are considering adoption after birth also know that just because this is the time frame that the law gives us doesn't mean that this is what we absolutely have to follow. You know, we, we can't do it beforehand, certainly, but we definitely don't need to do it right at that moment. We can, we can give them a little bit more time to make sure that they feel like they're making the right decision. And is the key really educating the adoptive parents uh, that uh, so that their expectations are not that, you know, they're looking at the clock as it ticks down to the 72-hour mark. Um, are they the ones that we need to, uh, to make certain understand that as much as the, uh, the, uh, the, exp the new mom? I find that a lot of times <laughs> the prospective adoptive parents are the ones that need that reality check. Um, yeah. You know, Expectant mom um, or mom who's had a baby needs to know what her rights are and what her responsibilities are if she decides to move forward with her adoption plan. Um, but she probably has a pretty good idea of what that means by that point in our, our counseling relationship. Um, whereas the adoptive family, even if they've been provided that information in education courses and different sessions throughout their process, when it's 
their placement, they're going to feel very emotional and want everything to be taken care of as soon as possible. And so I think, again, that perspective taking of reminding them how difficult this decision is, especially if a consent or surrender is irrevocable, um, that they really need to remember that this is not just about them. Yeah, again, that term I really like, perspective taking, yeah. Something we could all use throughout our lives <laughs> and, um, in yes, all relationships sure. in our lives. <laughs> Uh, that would be important. Uh, we have a question from Sarah, uh, kind of generally on accountability, agency accountability. Sarah says, I know no agency can guarantee what your weight will be, but there should be an expectation of honesty and forthrightness from the beginning. Our first adoption agency told us they did 40 adoptions a year, and when we, and when we left them after 18 months of waiting, they had done four adoptions that year, and that was June. We lost the over $10,000 of money we had paid. Lack of being honest, uh, it, my number one concern is lack of being honest with those inquiring or those already in the waiting pool with the true numbers of matches and finalization, or if there has been a slowdown for whatever reason. Susan, let's talk some about, uh, this is focusing not on the uh, expectant parents or birth parents, but focusing on what is promised to um, or implied to adoptive parents. So what is reasonable from an adoptive parent standpoint to expect to hear and information to get from their adoption agency on wait times and how many adoptions and things like that? I think it's incredibly important and um, very reasonable for them, for them to expect um, to receive honest information from the beginning and to have um, the agency be transparent about things like fees, number one, and time frames, number two, because in my experience, those are the two areas where most prospective adoptive parents want to know, you know, the truth. And those are the, the questions that they usually come in with um, at the beginning. So for the agency to, you know, say that they do 40 adoptions a year but only do four, um, I mean, I would, I would be concerned at the, you know, at the time that, that you are selecting your agency um, that you ask for data. You know, you kind of ask for um, you know, show me the past three years of, you know, can you show me the numbers of placements you've done? Um, and we tried to do that here um, to keep track of, of statistics. And um, even though some years may not be as good as other years, this, you know, this isn't the kind of thing where you can really, um, you know, it's, we're not doing, we're not um, an industry in the, in the sense that we're making, uh, we're making a product. So we can't tell you how many exactly um, we're going to do in a year, but we can show you what the history was for the past three years of how many placements were made. We also would, would want them to ask um, those questions whenever they're um, going to informational meetings you know, or making phone calls um, before they select their agency. Yeah, I, um, I would agree uh, that and 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 in this case, let's assume that the adoption agency that Sarah was using, her first one, um, had done 40 adoptions in, let's say, the previous years. Would would Susan would they have an obligation if they saw that for whatever reason um, they were way behind their numbers? Do they have an obligation to reach out to those people who are then on their waiting list and let them know? 
Well, I feel like if they had given them an expectation of, of time frame, you know, of, of, you know, how long the wait would be, then yes, I feel like they would have a, an obligation to let them know, hey, this is what's happening and your wait time will probably be a little bit longer than what we told you last year. One of the things you talked about in the presentation you did at the uh, uh, National Council for Adoption um, uh, Conference was uh, beware of what you read on the Internet. Um, In particular, you were talking about the adoption entities promising quick placements uh, or, again, what we had talked about before, Mm -hmm. a a lot of incentives to get uh, pregnant women to place. Um, Those were things that you said were red flags for agencies. Ashley, can you explain why that would be a red flag for, for you for an agency? Sure. I think it's very similar to what you've already said, Don, about um, adoptive parents, prospective adoptive parents needing to do some due diligence on their own parts and, and look at not only the adoptive parent side of an agency's website, but also the birth parent or expectant parent side um, and really understand what that looks like. Um, so if they are saying, you know, we're going to get you a quick placement, you have to remember that that means, you know, we're working with X number of expectant parents who we are expecting to place their babies for adoption. Um, and you want to really look at that other side again and not just think about, well, I really want a baby fast, so I'm going to go with this agency, even though I don't really understand how they're working with expectant parents. Um, so really, you know, doing that due diligence and taking a look at um, not only what's going to affect you, but also what's going to affect the, the expectant parents or birth parents um, in that agency's process is definitely important. And one of our challenges as uh, you as adoption professionals and, and we as adoption educators is to work on that sense of entitlement that we sometimes see in adoptive parents. I, I want the ba- I want a baby as soon as I can. I want you know just the fastest baby. I don't care just don't care what you do. Get me the baby, the fastest baby, any way you possibly can. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, and that's something that we yeah that we all take seriously. I, I think trying to uh, tame down that sense uh, that this is supposed to be about the child. Um, here's a question on race and the issue of different prices based on the race of a child. This came from Renee. Uh, I think, Susan, uh, you're the one I'm directing this one to. Uh, Renee says, another thing that really bothers me when is when I speak when I spoke with an agency and they quoted me one fee for a Caucasian baby and another much lower for a child of a different race. It felt like a market with high-priced goods and low-priced goods. Isn't this price difference inherently unethical? Susan, thoughts on that? Um, from my perspective, <laughs> yes, I, I think that is unethical. Um, I think, uh, you know, our fees um, that we have to charge in domestic infant adoptions are for the services that we're providing to all of our clients, right, to all of our expectant mothers as well as all of our adoptive parents. Um, and those services are um, delivered by professionals and agencies, even nonprofit, you know, especially nonprofit agencies, still have to um, pay for their staff and their rent and their utilities and all that. Um, so we have to charge fees, but but those fees, you know, the services that we're providing are not any different based on the race of the expectant mother. Um, so 
you know, there is no reason um, other than we, we, I do know that there are organizations who have had those um, differential kind of fee schedules for the race because they were trying to find families for children of color and they were um, describing it as an incentive mm-hmm. to, you know, encourage families to adopt babies of color. Um, but do you find that now that tw- I, I, yeah. do, you, do you find in 2017 that and, and and you're located in the northeast so that uh, that right your answer will be based on where you're located um and it might be different for a different geographical area but do you find that uh you it is harder to place a full african american baby than a uh white baby No we don't Yeah I, and I don't know if that I this question always I always hesitate on and this question comes up uh, frequently because I've on our support group well not frequently but we certainly hear it uh but but what I hear from agencies who say they do this is that they do it because they do have a harder time finding families for uh full African American uh infants and they want to make certain that those babies are uh are finding homes quickly so they believe that it is it's uh it is worth it for those reasons and that what they say is that they're using the the money from the fee that they charge more for to subsidize uh, those adoptions that they charge less for so uh-huh. i, uh, I yeah. but i i wonder if that how how much that is is geographically based uh and that's not really a question i realize um that you can answer or perhaps you can any thoughts on that uh, I'll, I'll let me say. Let me start with you, Ashley. Any thoughts on 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 that in general? So I think that um, that part of the issue with charging different fees is the is different families that might say, well, I can get this cheaper price for my adoption if I adopt a child of color, and so I'm going to make that decision, not really thinking about all of the other things that need to be thought about in pursuing a transracial adoption. Um, And so I think that that's something that agencies should be really thoughtful about. Um, That's something that our agency is is sort of working on. I think that this is a adoption is always evolving and and agencies are always evolving as well um, to really provide the the best services possible to prospective adoptive parents, to expectant parents, to make sure that everybody understands sort of what they're getting into um, and and making sure that that families are choosing transracial adoption for the right reasons. I think that, you know, sometimes we also see and and other agencies may also see that um, there may be a shorter wait time for a child of color. Um, for similar reasons. You know, if it's harder to place, there are fewer families that are looking um, to adopt a child of color. They may say, well, I want a shorter wait time, so I'm going to, you know, adopt an African-American baby, um, not really thinking through what it means to be in a transracial adoption. And it's such a great point that uh, the counter-argument to saying, well, we're we're doing it because we need to provide incentives to five families is you don't want families to choose transracial adoption for price, you want families who are choosing transracial right. adoption to be choosing it because that is truly a choice that they've they know about, they've been educated on, they've thought through the ramifications for their child and for themselves and for their family and extended family. So that's a really good point exactly. um, about the the mm-hmm. issue. Great point. Um, we have a we got a couple of questions on 
birth father rights or expectant father rights, uh, both. Um, one, I'll read the one from Robin. She says, if an expectant mother says that the birth father is unknown, how can prospective adoptive parents be sure this is so? Other than not accepting situations in which the birth father is unknown, how can uh, adoptive parents address the unknown birth father problem? Um, uh, Ashley, some thoughts on that. It's uh, what can ethical agencies do to reduce the number of women who say that the birth father is unknown, assuming that 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 she does know. Uh, obviously, there are times when she truly doesn't. But um, uh, thoughts on that? Ashley? Sure. Yeah. So I think that this is really a, a state by state issue in some ways. Um, some of the states that we work in allow a mother to refuse to name the father, and so that's almost a separate thing because that's allowed by the state can't really push that too much because that is her right under that state's law um, whereas so I work in Pennsylvania and in Pennsylvania the law is very clear that it takes two people to make a baby and both of those people have an equal right and responsibility to decide what happens with that baby um, so if a mom tells me that the father is unknown there are a lot of follow-up questions um, so for prospective adoptive parents, because there is such a risk involved with a supposedly unknown father who could pop up later and disrupt an adoption, um, I think it's important to consider where you live, what the state's laws are, um, as well as the agency and, and sort of how much they push that issue depending on, on how much it needs to be pushed. Um, and it's certainly something that, you know, there needs to be a balance of sensitivity of this may be a difficult situation for the expectant mother. Um, and you don't want to say, well, you need to tell me every detail of your sex life because that's uncomfortable for everyone. Um, but at the same time, you know, if it's required by the law, if it's, you know, the option between telling me or going in front of a usually male judge and telling him <laughs> about what happened, uh, maybe we can make it a little bit easier in, in having that conversation with me. Um, so that's, I don't, I think it's difficult for the adoptive parents to have much say in the matter. I think it's more um, choosing an appropriate agency who's going to do the best work they can to, to uncover any um, undisclosed information. But Susan, how can a, I know that Ashley just answered that, but I'm going to turn to you. So how can an adoptive, a prospective adoptive parent find an agency that they feel like will be uh, exploring as hard as they can to find out and encouraging and, and creating a safe environment where the uh, uh, expectant mom would feel comfortable sharing? What are the things that, that a, a prospective adoptive parent could ask that would help them tease that out when they're choosing an agency? Well, I think that is really important, and they could certainly ask about um, the agency's practices with unknown fathers um, or with women who are reluctant, you know, initially to give information about um, potential fathers. And I think, you know, we, we would hope Prospective parents will ask uh, for um, references of other clients of the agency so that they can ask those questions, you know, of people who have used the services and completed an adoption successfully. Um, I think that's one of the best ways for people to uh, get information and get recommendations and really, you know, hear the nuts and bolts of what um, the experience was like from other, from other parents. Mm -hmm. it seems I think to another be... option... Yeah, go ahead. 
I was just going to say another option for um, prospective adoptive parents would be, again, taking another look at the agency's website and specifically looking at the expectant parent portion, determining whether they even address the birth father at all. Sometimes agencies will only address the birth father in sort of a frequently asked questions of what if the birth father isn't in agreement with adoption? <laughs> what can I do yeah. as, a, as an expectant mom? Um, and that's a bit of a red flag um, because father has just as, just the same rights as the mother to determine whether adoption is the right plan. Um, so a lot of times if, you know, you can sort of tell that from looking at a website or even talking with a social worker of, you know, are we ignoring the birth father? Is the birth father a problem we need to deal with? Or is the birth father an active part of this plan who's involved if he wants to be? Yeah, that is such a good point. And I, I think things are shifting a bit, although I still, and I really liked your idea about, that's a specifically look at the section of the adoption agency's website that deals with uh, expected parents and makes certain that the birth father is, you know, that they're pictures of a, of a guy uh, and not just a woman, a pregnant woman, and that, that, and that some of the, and that the mm-hmm. language is also addressed uh, to both parents. That's a, a, a really good point. But I do think that there are, there, I've seen a shift um, I don't know. Have you guys seen the shift as well? That that that. Uh, let's say ten years ago, I think it was more common to see agencies who were, uh, shall we say, less respectful of birth fathers' rights than they are now. Or am I living in a bubble and and I'm seeing what I want to see? Susan, thoughts? No, I think you're absolutely right um, that there has been more of a shift in the past ten years. I am not 100% sure, you know, what what some of the factors are, but I would think that, you know, there have been some high-profile cases, mm-hmm. you know, in the legal system um, addressing birth father's rights or how birth father's rights were not uh, were not respected um, that might have brought about some of this change. But I think um, it is something that everyone is more um, – is, everyone is trying to be um, much more aware of. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, and, and I think you're, I also think you're right uh, as to the reasons uh, that it being that there's been more high-profile cases. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and as tragic as that is for the child involved and for both families involved, I think it has made us um, uh, cognizant, uh, even if we were originally cognizant, it's made everyone cognizant for those who are not. Uh, and we have yes. uh, uh, one last question, and this is from Gretchen. She says, when parents discover their baby has disabilities, how can things be done ethically to ensure that they have really considered all aspects before placing the child for adoption? Many parents feel so overwhelmed by grief when their child is born with disabilities. Uh, that How can we assure infants are not placed when in reality first families could indeed be the, be- the best family for that child? Um, she raises an interesting question about special needs uh, adoptions. One question I had, Ashley, how often um, do you see as uh, as an agency, adoptions from the heart, how often, which would probably be reflective of other agencies as well, I would guess, um, parents coming in at, who had not planned on placing but because of the disability decide to place afterwards? Is that a very common occurrence? It's not very common. Um, it is something that we see occasionally. I would say probably five cases a year or less. Um, Susan, you tell me if you think it's more than that. Um, so it, it's definitely something that we see, but it's certainly not 
very common. Um, and I think when those situations arise, the, the same options counseling are, is obviously provided, um, but especially since this plan is really being made specific to the, the needs of the child, um, oftentimes the conversation will reflect more around that. Um, so for example, I had a placement um, a couple of years ago with a, a mom who knew that her baby would be born with spina bifida, and she was already parenting several other children and just felt like this was not an option for her. She could not bring this child into her family and still provide for the children she was already raising as well as this child in all the ways that she needed to do that. Um, but we really explored all of those options. So we talked about whether there were relatives that could help to help her with her other children, help her with this child. Um, we involved the birth father in the conversation to determine, you know, what was the what was what were his feelings about the plan. Um, she really decided that she knew she couldn't do it on her own. Um, and that making a, a permanent plan where she could have some openness and see how the child was doing was the best option for her. And just as a uh, curiosity question, do you have, is it particularly difficult to find families uh, for children with, and I realize the answer would somewhat depend on the degree of disability, but let's say, let's use the example you mm -hmm. gave, a child with spina bifida. Um, how hard is it for you to find mm -hmm. a family, adoptive family? And Ashley, I'll go ahead and direct it to you since you were the one already answered. Sure. So it's sometimes difficult. I mean, like you said, it does definitely depend on the degree of disability. Um, we sometimes are able to find a family within our program, and oftentimes we also work with um, other agencies um, or organizations like Rainbow Kids that specifically work with families that are looking to adopt children with special needs um, that are fully prepared for everything that that might mean um, as they went through their home study process or maybe they have experience with other children um, with special needs or disabilities um, that we're able to really find the, the best family for that specific child. Yes, and I will reach out and tell uh, for our the agencies that are partners with Creating a Family, uh, we have a waiting child section, and if the agency would like, we can also um, put out information through our extensive social media connections and networks. Uh, and we have found that uh, you know, families just pour in that we, again, it depends on the degree of special need. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you get the word out, um, of course, then you have to also specify whether they're home study approved, but we can do all that. So that is something right. that, that we do for our uh, partner agencies and uh, um, sure. uh, to spread the word uh, as wide as we can. I have mentioned earlier right. that uh, Creating a Family exists because of the generous support of, of our sponsors, including our gold sponsors. I told you a few at the beginning, but let me mention a few more. We have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been helping children connect with loving families for more than 50 years. They now have offices from coast to coast providing domestic adoption, international adoption, foster care adoption, as well as embryo donation and adoption services through their Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. And we have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They have three adoption programs. They have a private infant program, 
an international program, and an adoption through foster care program. And last but not least, the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. Thank you so much, Ashley and Susan, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, this show, and I've enjoyed talking about issues that I think about but don't have many places to talk about. And so I, I really I appreciate your talking with me about it. Uh, for our audience, uh, if you would like to reach out to either Ashley Cadet or Susan Myers or Adoptions from the Heart, you can go to their website. And their website is AFTH, which stands for Adoptions from the Heart. So AFTH.org. If you have enjoyed listening to this show do us a favor and please pop over to iTunes and give us a ranking. Uh, it's a star ranking and or a comment, either one, and we really would appreciate that. That would uh, help us uh, and help us maintain our number one ranking in, uh, in iTunes, which we would appreciate. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.